0: This morning I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. We're going to be looking for the second week in a row at spiritual war. Now last week we took a very New Testament approach to this topic of spiritual war. We looked at a couple of different passages, remind you of those things now. We found that Jesus in Luke 21 is telling us to be watchful because He is going to return to the earth in judgment. So one side of this spiritual war, this spiritual conflict, is that of good and light. Light is a phrase found often in the New Testament to describe this. And on that side of the conflict, we acknowledge that there is, in fact, a righteous judge who has created this world and who will return to judge the sin of his creation. Also, last week, we looked at Peter's words, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter is also telling us to be watchful, but he directs our attention to the other side of the conflict, that which is evil, often described and depicted as darkness, namely that we have an enemy or an adversary who opposes us when we align ourselves with God. So, be watchful because Jesus is the righteous judge who is going to return Many will be caught off guard by that. That's the warning from Luke 21. Also be watchful because there is an enemy at work in the world and he is subtle and there are many who do not take him very seriously so Peter says that we should be sober or serious and vigilant as we consider this. Then we finished last week with a very familiar passage, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. And it makes sense if we're going to be involved in some sort of spiritual conflict, some sort of war, that uh, we should prepare ourselves by equipping the necessary instruments of war. We're reminded of those in Ephesians chapter 6. And then there's these verses at the end in verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. And in these closing verses, we find what we found elsewhere in the New Testament. It's a a repeated theme, that we should be watchful, that we should be praying. Remember Peter phrased that, that we should cast all of our cares upon God, for He cares for us. Jesus telling us not to be concerned with the cares of this world, And here we're to be presenting our supplications which involve the things that we need and that we request to God and being watchful. We need these reminders. We need them. It is not coincidence that we find so many of them in the New Testament. Remember, be mindful, be watchful. There is a spiritual war around us. Uh, In our flesh, we often uh, view the world through only what we can uh, see with our own eyes or touch with our own fingers. What we can hear with our ears and that's, that's just how we see the world. And the Bible is telling us that that is actually a very foolish way to live. It makes one vulnerable to destruction. God is repeatedly telling us not to be so foolish as to imagine that the only competing interests in the world are human interests. It's kind of eerie when you think about it like that. There is, in fact, something beyond mere human interest at work. There is a conflict that we don't see. It involves deception and manipulation. And there are great casualties of this war. And we might experience these casualties in our lives, and unfortunately they come with eternal significance. Now that was from last week, and it was meant to set the stage for what we find now in Daniel chapter 10. Let's just read the first three verses now. It says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. You remember that's the Babylonian name that Daniel was given. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. And he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. A few things to note here right away. Daniel is now very old in this, this book, uh, and uh, this final vision that we're getting will encompass all of chapters 10, 11, and 12. This is, so this is the beginning of, of the end, so to speak. If you just can't wait to be done with Daniel, you are, you are at the conclusion, but he's 90 if not older at this point in time. So, he's frail. He's a human being. He's old. The Babylonian Empire is a thing of the past. By this point, the Persian Empire had already released certain Jews to go back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the very city of God that the Babylonians destroyed. And Daniel, presumably, is too old for that kind of endeavor, so he's serving out the rest of his life in Persia. And there's a message revealed to him that's also called a vision here. Now, unlike the other visions or messages that appear in the book of Daniel, we don't get a great detailed description of what he saw. Maybe he just heard the words as they are depicted to us in chapters 11 and 12. But whatever he sees, it's obvious here in these opening verses, it greatly troubles him. Let's take a particular look at this phrase here. It says, "...the message was true, but the appointed time was long." Now, that's the New King James translation of the verse. I preach for the New King James. I think it's a very faithful English translation of the Bible. But I don't think it does the best with this particular phrase. When you look at the actual Hebrew words, the one is sabah. It's the word translated in the New King James for time. You see in the phrase, the appointed time. That's the Hebrew word sabah. It's actually a very common word in the Old Testament. It appears 485 times, overwhelmingly meaning war or battle or host of war or armies. Only three times, including this one, does the New King James translate it as time. The other word is gadol, which means great. So if sabah means time, then gadol would mean a great time or a long time. And that's what we see in the translation but I'm not sure that that's what it actually means. I think that it means war, host, battle, conflict, as it does throughout the rest of the scriptures. That's actually how the other English translations interpret it. All of the uh, translations that we would be familiar with, as well as the older translations, would interpret it the same way. A great conflict, a great war. Um, Daniel goes into mourning, which I think is appropriate if you've had a vision of a great conflict, a great war, something troubling, a great battle. It says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. It says, Now on the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man, clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, What stands out to us here is the timing, first of all, the 24th day of the first month. I don't expect you to be an expert on the Hebrew calendar, the Jewish calendar. I'm not an expert on the Jewish calendar. But it might be of significance to recognize that this is the time of the Passover. This 24th day of that month is shortly after the Passover. But you remember that Daniel has been mourning for three full weeks, which means what began to trouble him originally happened shortly before the Passover. He has spent the Passover considering this. That's what I take away from the text. We know the Passover is a significant time. It's the time when God establishes Israel as his people, where he sends an angel of death, an angel of destruction, to visit the households in Egypt. And he passes over judgment on those who by faith post the, the blood of a lamb on the lintel and the post of their doorframe. And in this whole big spiel, God explains that he's actually executing judgment over the gods of Egypt. So there's a spiritual element to what God is doing. And of course the New Testament, the Passover is when God makes his one great sacrifice to pass over all of our sin in Jesus Christ. It's at the Passover that Jesus is crucified and God's perfect lamb achieves for us victory over sin and death. So Daniel's vision here that is so alarming happens at this time. And it says he's mourning over this vision and what does he see but a certain man. A certain man. Now, here's a summary of what we see described in these verses. It says a man, a male, a human uh, kind of form and appearance, clothed in linen, okay? girded with gold, a body like beryl. Now, beryl is a disputed word among commentators, but it's, it's agreed upon that w- the idea here is of a crystalline kind of form, which I don't think means his body was made of crystals, but it had the effect of magnifying or radiating light um, he has a face of lightning, eyes like torches, arms and feet like burnished bronze, voice like a multitude. Now, you can read a description like that and see, obviously, this is no mere man that Daniel encounters here. It is like a man and yet not merely a man. And it is actually very similar to the description that we have of Jesus in Revelation 1. Uh, of course, Jesus is a man in Revelation 1, but not merely a man. He's clothed, uh, Revelation tells us, from from head to toe in a garment. It doesn't say linen, but I assume it's the, it's the Greek word that John would use to describe a typical linen garment, as opposed to a leather skin or a piece of armor or some other uh, element. He's girded with gold. In Revelation, it describes the gold as just below the chest, which is about right with what Daniel sees. In Daniel, the body is described as this kind of crystal, gem-like quality. In Revelation, the whole image is shining and radiating, which I think is what Daniel was seeing. I think that's what he's trying to describe if there's this crystalline body and a face and a radiance like lightning. In Revelation, John uses wool or snow to describe his face and his hair. I don't think he means texture. I think he means the brightness of it. Uh, And John is trying to describe, I think in verse 16, Revelation 1, that Jesus is shining like the sun, so that fits a face like lightning. The eyes are the same, the feet are the same. The voice in Revelation is described as both a trumpet and the ocean. And I don't know about you, but I don't relate those two sounds very often. I've been to the ocean, I have heard a trumpet. I don't go to the ocean and say, well, it sounds like a trumpet. So I don't think this means tone. I think it means a sense of the overwhelming nature of the voice. Because if you've ever been next to someone who's blaring away on a trumpet, it is overwhelming. If you've ever been to the ocean and you hear the crashing of waves It also is an overwhelming sound. It drowns everything else out. So is this Jesus that appears to Daniel in Daniel 10? We don't know. It's either Jesus or another angelic being. Commentators are split. But I thought it was worth our time to do a side-by-side comparison. Now look at the reaction in verses 7 and 8 here. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them. So they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision. No strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. I think this has some similarity to what we see in the book of Acts when Jesus is encountered by Paul, Saul at the time, on the road to Damascus. The text of that is Acts 9, 3 through 8. And it says that as, as Saul is coming near to Damascus, there's a light that shines around him. He falls to the ground he hears a voice speaking to him, Saul, So, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the, the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he said, trembling and astonished, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the city. You'll be told there what you must do. The men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, When his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. Now, in both stories, we see this this light, this man. Perhaps they both see Jesus, I don't know. In both stories, there is a collapse, a failing of human strength. In both stories, the men in proximity do not see what Paul and Daniel see, but they have some divine experience without the full revelation. Here in Daniel 10, the men with Daniel do not see, but, in fact, a great terror comes upon them. So there is perhaps overlap between the two accounts. of of this divine uh, encounter uh, in Acts and in Daniel 10. In Acts, it doesn't come right out and say that the men are terrified. It says, Paul is terrified the men are speechless. I don't think it's much of a leap to say that they were probably afraid. As for Daniel, like Paul, he experiences a complete collapse Many commentators, and I would put myself in the category, see this as a near-death experience for Daniel. He goes on and on to talk about him losing all of his vigor, losing all of his strength. It's repeated several times in the text ahead. Remember, he's been mourning for three weeks. He's not been eating regularly. He's very old, and he has this shocking and divine encounter. The text tells us multiple times that he is basically collapsed and near death. Now, verses 9 and 10. Yet I heard the sound of his words. And while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. So we don't know what the man said who Daniel saw. We don't know what he was saying. It says he was speaking. He is speaking. We don't have what he is speaking. But as Daniel is collapsed, he hears the man speaking, but he is on the ground. His face is in the dirt. He is without strength to stand. He can't even look up and then a hand touches him. And this is where we have the uncertainty of who exactly are we dealing with here. The hand that touches him, okay, is this the same person who he sees in this glorious appearance at the beginning? So he sees a man and he's overwhelmed by the appearance. He falls down and he collapses. Is the one now who is touching him and strengthening him and who will be speaking to him the rest of the chapter, is this the same person? figure, the same person. If it is, then it's probably not Jesus because this man appears to be, this, this angel appears to be in weakness. He describes his weakness. He, de- he describes his struggle. He doesn't de- describe himself as the all-powerful commander of the army of the Lord or anything like that. So if it's the same person, probably not Jesus. If it is, in fact, a different person, well, maybe. We don't know. But he strengthens him. He reaches down and verse 11 says, He said to me, O man... Greatly beloved. Understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Now I just want to pause here and tell you this. For my money, which may not be a lot. This is one of the most precious uh, phrases in in the Bible. The reason I say that is because of how Daniel is addressed by the angel in verse eleven. Now you've really got you got to think about this for a second. Old Daniel, man greatly beloved. You gotta think about what Daniel's life has been like. It's, it's not been like our lives. You may have had a difficult life, probably not holding a candle here to Daniel. I mean, this is a guy who is captured by an invading force from his home when he's a teenager, you know? And he's taken to a place that is foreign to him. He's trained with eunuchs, whether he was physically mutilated himself or not, it's unclear. But he never has a wife, children, heir, anything like that. He's uh, constantly in danger in this new place. And from afar, from hundreds of miles away, he hears of the news that the place where he'd been captured from has now been completely destroyed and razed to the ground. There is no king in Israel anymore. There is no temple in Israel anymore anymore. The God of Israel is not being worshipped by any people anymore. There are no more sacrifices. And he hasn't just lived like this for a while. This is the existence from a teenager to 90 years old. Constantly under threat of political enemies who don't like it that this Jew has risen to some place of prominence in the Babylonian Empire. Afflicted, challenged, and yet Daniel remains faithful through all of this. And now he is old and feeble and near death. And the aging process humbles a person. And it makes you think about your life. (laughs) And then it makes you think about what you've done and where you are and what's ahead. And he is frail. And he gets this angel who appears to him and who tells him, You are greatly loved in heaven. Most of us have to wait until we die to know exactly what heaven thinks about us. If heaven thinks about us at all. If we offer anything to God worthy of celebration or praise. But for Daniel, he gets a glimpse into this future for himself. The kingdom that he is going to, the kingdom of God is very pleased with him. They love him there very much. Babylon might not have cared very much for Daniel. Persia might not recognize much of his Babylonian distinguished career. But the kingdom that he's going to, they know Daniel and they, they love him there. For many of us, we have that backwards, don't we? I think that we do. We would like for the kingdom of New Paris or the kingdom of Richmond or Eden or Lewisburg, or wherever, far and wide. But we would like for our little kingdoms to appreciate us and to respect us, to recognize what we've done, who we are. And we give precious little thought sometimes to the kingdom that we are going to. And it's backwards, isn't it? I mean, it's not logical. It's not logical to be mostly concerned with the kingdom in which we'll spend a fraction of our eternal existence as opposed to a kingdom in which we will dwell forever. There's nothing logical about that. That's not intuitive, but it's so difficult for us. We're concerned so much with how we will be perceived in the handful of years we spend in the domains of this earth. And, and I don't think that that's right. And I think that's worth a pause and a, a consideration for you this morning. Let's just read now, beginning in verse 12 to the end of the chapter, and maybe we'll get a deeper glimpse of the kingdoms of this world here. It says, Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. And when he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men, touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, Because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong, yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael your prince. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen Him. Now that's as far as we'll go this morning. You see it bleeds into chapter 11. It's a poor chapter division there. It's the same thought that's being finished in verse 1. Now there are some really important things, I think, to pay attention as you read this text. I'm going to highlight a few of them here. We're going to cross-reference these things, kind of jump around the Bible a little bit to give you a sense of what's going on here. So if you pay attention for the rest of the today, you'll get kind of a thorough picture I think, of what's happening here. If you don't pay attention, then there's not really much I can do about that, is there? I guess I could be better at this, but eh, it is what it is. But if you don't pay attention, I think you're going to leave fairly unconcerned with this spiritual conflict, probably disinterested, probably brought that disinterest with you, suffer the consequences then of that along the way. So I would implore you now to pay attention as we move around, kind of quickly here this morning. Now... First, in verse 13 and verse 20, you see these multiple references to princes and kings of various places. The prince of the kingdoms of Persia, the kings of Persia, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. And these are spooky because this is an angel speaking. And he is clearly a supernatural being himself. And he's clearly talking about other supernatural beings, but he's talking so casually about them. As if they were human rulers in human places. And of course, all of these places, Persia, Greece, etc., they have human princes and kings. But the angel speaking to Daniel is clearly saying that behind... These human beings in places of leadership, there are spiritual beings with dominion and power in these kingdoms too. And the angel speaking to Daniel has been in conflict. I don't think that the human king of Persia would have had much of a shot against an angel. Okay, I mean, you know anything about the angels in the Bible, one of them kills like 180 some thousand people in, in one, I mean, this is, this is clearly a conflict of spiritual proportions here, of supernatural proportions here. And it says, in fact, that this angelic messenger had been held up for 21 days after he was sent to Daniel, and that Michael, who we know to be an archangel from other texts throughout the Bible, actually came to help him because he had been detained or left alone with spiritual beings called here the kings of Persia part of what makes this so unsettling is the matter-of-fact way that it's described. I mean, I could see you just kind of ploughing along in some daily Bible reading effort and just just reading the whole Daniel chapter 10 and be like, "Well, that was interesting," and turning the page. I mean, it just it there's no there's no great exposition on all of this here. It's just an angel talking about angel things. Well, I'm not an angel. This stuff is unsettling. Well, the Bible tells us that there are angels whom God originally created in heaven who have fallen from the position that God created them to inhabit. They're described as being in rebellion against God. I mean, give you a few passages here. You can look at them, jot them down, or just, just listen. Hopefully one of those three as opposed to not listening. But Genesis 6, these angels are called the sons of God, which in the Old Testament is a phrase always used to talk about angels in the New Testament. Sons of God, we become children of God in the New Testament. But not so in the Old Testament. The Hebrew, this is a phrase It's always talking about angels. And it talks about these angelic beings leaving heaven, the abode that they're in. Jude references this, by the way, in the book of Jude in the New Testament. And coming down to the earth and actually procreating on the earth It's very creepy, eerie stuff. And 2 Corinthians describes their leader, Satan, who prefers to, rese- to represent himself as an angel of light. Jesus testifies that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven to the earth. John receives a heavenly description of this rebellion in the text that I read from Revelation 12 at the beginning of our worship service. It talks about a dragon who later in that same chapter is described as the one who is called the devil. Okay? His name is not devil. We'll get into that in a minute. But he's this dragon and he sweeps a third of the host of heaven with him in this rebellion and then war breaks out in heaven. I mean... The Bible is pretty pretty, you know, well-read. If you read the Bible, you're be pretty well-read on these topics. And then in Job chapter 1, there's this, there's this odd and strange spiritual thing where it talks about all the angelic created beings of God gather in heaven, and even Satan comes among them, and God asks Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answers, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Satan does not come from hell. Okay. He doesn't live in hell. Hell is not his home. He's not trying to get you to, to, to come hang out with him in hell. You hear people talk about hell so casually sometimes. I'm just going to go to hell and be with the devil and blah, blah, blah. And It's like, are you kidding? You have no idea what you're talking about. Satan doesn't want to go to hell any more than you do. It's not his home. He's not there right now. We have no reason to think he's ever been there. Hell is a place of separation from God and eternal judgment. That's not where Satan is. It's not where the Bible says that he is. It's just a caricature. Satan. No, Satan is on the earth. This is where he has chosen to be because on the earth he might have dominion. He can't have that dominion in heaven, but on the earth he might have dominion, power, rule, and worship. This is his place by choice as much as By consequence, in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel is writing to the king of Tyre. Now, the king of Tyre, a real human being, you know. I don't know know, how big he was or what color his skin was, but it's a real guy. And you can get that sense as you're reading through Ezekiel 28. And Yet in the middle of the prophecy, it's clear that God began speaking through the prophet Ezekiel to a spiritual entity behind the king of Tyre, who's also called the king of Tyre. Similar to how here we have a real king of Persia and real kings of Greece, they're real human beings, but in Daniel 10, it's speaking to something supernatural, something demonic, something angelic behind the actual human king. And this is what we read, and it's very, I mean, it's, it's, off, it's offsetting. But it says in verse 13, Ezekiel 28, you were in Eden, the garden of God. So I don't think he's talking about the human king of time. I don't think he was there, okay? You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sargis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers, an angel. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Do you know how to imagine that in your mind? Can you put some sort of mental picture to that? I cannot. I don't know what that looks like. I mean, I'm sure whatever is conjured up in my mind is from some movie or thing, oh, some painting. I mean, its I don't know how to picture that. But Satan was in heaven with God on the mountain of God where God is worshipped, where God is proclaimed as king by angelic beings, and he walked on the mountain of God amidst the fiery stones. Now compare that to what Job says about where Satan is now, where he walks on the earth to and fro, on the ground, on the dirt. That's quite the demotion. It's actually very sad to think about. And there is a mournful tone to what God is saying in Ezekiel 28. Look at how you have fallen. Look at what you have made of yourself. Look at what your sin and corruption has brought to you. It says you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as something profane out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you, all covering cherub, from the midst of the firing sto- fiery stones. Very similar passage in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, it's written to the king of Babylon. The majority of the chapter applies to a human king of Babylon. And then right in the middle, God pivots and speaks through the prophet Isaiah to the spiritual force behind the king of Babylon... Satan, and this is what it says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Now the name Lucifer is used only here in all the Bible, and many people then take it to mean this was Satan's original name. We call him Satan. We call him devil. Uh, Satan and devil have meanings; they're not a name. They're more of a title or a description of a being here. But Lucifer wasn't his name. I don't know. It's the Hebrew word Heliel. It's used only here in all of the Old Testament. It means light bearer. It comes from the word, the verb, which means to shine. Satan was beautiful. He was he was marvelous. I think it's actually not very accurate to think of, of Satan. It's not very compelling to think of him as this, some horned, deformed entity of maliciousness and darkness, some ugly, impish creature. That's, that's no description we see from the Word of God. He was marvelous. He is marvelous. And he is fully corrupted, irredeemably so. Satan means slanderer. I'm sorry, Satan means enemy. Devil means slanderer. These are titles of who he is. He is an adversary. He is an enemy. He is a slanderer. He speaks lies. His character is on display in Genesis 3. He tells the woman, you remember what he tells her, you won't surely die. What is he saying? God is lying to you. God's word is not trustworthy. You won't die. God has said that if you... You'll die if you disobey His command. That's not true. For God knows that the day you eat of this, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And what is He actually saying here? God is keeping you from becoming like Him, like God. God knows if you do this, you will be like Him, which is what Satan would desire for himself. God is not good. He's a liar. He's a tyrant. He would keep you from fulfilling your potential. Is this not the same spiritual lie that's perpetuated in the world today about God? Is this not the same message? If God is good, why is there so much suffering? Why doesn't He do this and why doesn't He do that? God is not good. God is not trustworthy. All those commands and those instructions, those archaic rules and ideas, they're all outdated. This is not a trustworthy thing. You believe in God. This is where your faith is. This is not reliable. What kind of a fool does this? Lies, slanders, demonic delusion. Here is Paul describing the same thing in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Um, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Now listen to what he says here. According to the prince of the power of the air. There's Ephesians 2. You see that title? You followed the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. It's actually a very scary thing to think about that the course of this world is manipulated by angelic beings who are in rebellion against God, who seek to administrate influence and power in places of human influence and power like kingships and kingdoms, in order to manipulate the course of the world and the people who live in this world. Working in kingdoms, working through art, working through culture, working through entertainment, working through economy, working through information. In such a skillful way that Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world many times. If the world trends towards evil and corruption and degradation and moral failure, it's not coincidence. It is by design, it's instigated by an unseen evil. And people unwittingly follow like lemmings on a path to an unknown destination which the Bible tells us is eternal hell. Now, this is why Jesus came into the world. He steps into the world as a light in the midst of darkness. He came to break the power of evil by making peace with God accessible to us through the cross, creatures of sin. Jesus has come to break the power of Satan and Satan understood this much. He even tries to lure Jesus to worship him and to join a rebellion against God the Father. This is the third temptation of Christ. Remember, he offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in their glory if Jesus will bow down and worship him. It's an incredible thing to commit to parting with. This is Satan, a false god, a self-proclaimed god, and the world is his sanctuary, and he would gladly part with it in order to secure the worship of Jesus, whose sanctuary is heaven. Jesus in perfection sees it for what it is. He's not moved by it. He speaks the word of God, which is truth. He speaks it unequivocally and without hesitation. Go away. Get away from me. For God has said, you shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. And with that rejection, the die is cast against Satan. His time on the earth is terminal. It will not last. The king of kings has come to redeem creation. From the prince of the power of the air, he will not be corrupted by this world as other men are. Now here's our last passage, last thing to consider for today, and believe me, I showed these slides to Allison yesterday, and there were way more of them, and there were way more passages, and then I clocked it in at about an hour and a half, and I said, as patient as these people are on Sunday mornings, the most faithful of them are going to be upset if I go for an hour and a half, so this is, this is the last one here, but this is, the scriptures are rich, I mean, we could go and and cross-reference all of what it says about Michael the archangel. We could delve into the idea that there is a scripture of truth that's alluded to at the end of Daniel 10 that is apparently a predetermined decree of what will happen by God that this angel is revealing to Daniel. I mean, there's so much that can be mined here. But it's probably enough if we don't miss the glory of what Jesus has done for us. I think I can have peace about the sermon if we settle here. Jesus, on His way to the cross in John 12, says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Now is the judgment. I mean, think about that. Satan was not cast into a lake of fire for all eternity in John 12. It didn't happen. It hasn't happened yet. That's still in the works. John 12 is 2,000 years ago. But Jesus is going to the cross and He knew that the cross was the victory that would overthrow the dominion of Satan forever. Now perhaps we should say the resurrection was the victory but the cross was the sacrifice required to secure it. You know, I don't know if you, if you watch sports, maybe not, I don't, I don't know, but if you, if you watch a game on TV, you know, when is the victory actually secure? Well, so there's a buzzer, there's a horn, there's a clock that goes to zero, there's, there's a, a point cap that's reached, whatever. I mean, this, we know, this is where it ends, right? But if you've watched it, you realize, you know, there was this point in whatever I was watching, and this is where it was actually won. This is when it was actually lost. This is when it was actually secured. I became official here. Well, look, Jesus has not returned to this earth. We're not all across the planet bending the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Satan is still roaming free here. But this, the cross, is the pivotal moment when it's all finished. It's all done right here. And Jesus knew that, and so he says here, now. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Why? Because now, if I go to the cross, I will draw all of his people to myself. I will rip out from this fortress of sin that Satan governs over in the world. I will rip out from underneath him the very worshipers that he desires. I'll rip them out and I will bring them to myself and I will reconcile them to God. I will forgive all their sin, I will put it away, and they can have peace with God forever. And that is why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross to draw you to himself. Let's just end with that thought. To draw you to himself, the Lord of glory became man and suffered a torturous death after living a righteous life. To draw you to him. And in that act, he defeats all of the slanderous purpose of Satan people would have you believe that here is a tyrannical God who would, who would rule your life with an iron fist and who is not just and who would hold you back from pleasure and enjoying all that there is. And if you follow this God and if you abide by these instructions and if you commit your life to serving Him, there will be suffering and there will be difficulty. But when we look at the cross, what do we see? We see a God who loves. We see a God who saves we see a God who pays what we cannot. We see redemption. We see forgiveness. We see an ultimate sacrifice. And it's the undoing of every slanderous thing that anyone could say about God. What about suffering? Do you not see Jesus suffering? Do you not see what God does in suffering? What about the goodness of God? Well, look at the evil inflicted upon Jesus. Can you not see the goodness of God in the forgiveness of our sins and the redemption of us forever? In that moment, when Jesus commits himself to love that fully and that completely, God shows a true and divine character that the lies of Satan cannot touch. And that's why you and I sit here this morning. Because we see in God something compelling. We see in Christ something unique. We see not only a God who created and is deserving of eternal glory for it, but we see a God who loves. We see a God who has sacrificed and who has given And I'm telling you, if you are on the fence about serving the Lord Jesus Christ, about serving God, because you are so attracted by the fleeting moments of this kingdom in this life, perhaps so enamored with building for yourself a name or a kingdom here, you have the wrong attitude. There is an eternal existence awaiting you, and that's where you should be concerned about what they think, about what you have, about what you're doing, about what you'll build there. Jesus makes all of this possible for you at the cross. And so that's why we gather on Sundays to celebrate. Now I think the tone of our worship this morning has been tempered. And I think that it has been quiet. And I found myself even singing songs lured into it. And I'm telling you, we have something to celebrate as believers. We have something that we should have great convictions about. There is a real spiritual work that's been done in our lives to save us from a spiritual evil That would threaten us and enslave us. This is something worth celebrating. As we close in prayer, let's do it justice this morning. Father, you are a great God and worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our devotion. You have given us so much and promised us even more for the future. You have promised that we are loved in heaven. You have promised your presence in our lives. And by the work of your Son, you fulfill these promises. By the blessing of your Holy Spirit, you dwell with us. You are the healer of our hearts. You do dwell with us. We can cast our cares upon you because of your great care for us. You are not limited in scope by how many things that your mind can pay attention to or keep track of. You are infinite, and so you can know each of us infinitely without distraction or limitation. You see the ins and outs of our daily lives in existence, and you take record of it, you take note of it, and you would guide us. Father, help us to be people that acknowledge you in all of our ways, that humble ourselves before you, that trust your leadership though there is suffering though there is difficulty help us to live by faith as Joe read this morning trusting you knowing that we might be sown in half knowing that we might live out our lives in caves or in nursing homes or in hospice care or as orphans or as widows and widowers As fathers and mothers without children. That we might face persecution. That we might face despair. That we might face spiritual difficulty. That we might find ourselves the target of an evil that's at work in the world. And yet you will sustain us. And bring us by faith into a better kingdom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. May your name be glorified among us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.